Hey guys, before we start the show, I want to talk directly to all the youth sports leaders out there. Have you ever had to get creative with how you handle replacing a lost jersey or help that new kid get a uniform well past the ordering window? Are you tired of handing out gear, managing orders, and stashing boxes in the basement? Hey, Squad Locker's here to change the game for you. Through our custom online store, you can offer a mix of custom sublimated, printed, and embroidered uniforms, plus team gear and spirit wear, all in one spot. Your always open store can serve coaches, players, parents, and fans directly and on demand, allowing for a seamless process from preseason to your championship run. Check out squadlocker.com forward slash suit up. That's squadlocker.com forward slash suit up to learn more. And now, on with the show. listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Here's our host and Squad Locker CEO, Gary Goldberg. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of On The Whistle. Uh, This is your host, Gary Goldberg, and today I welcome Dave Steckel. Dave is uh, a lifelong football player and football coach. He's also a retired Marine. And uh, Dave has had a fascinating career, or as I'm going to continue to call him through the show, Coach. Coach has had a fascinating career. Uh, Grew up in rural Pennsylvania um, and started coaching at Dickinson College and started there early and was part of a transformational group of coaches that really left an interesting legacy, and we're going to get into that a little bit and probably start our journey there. And then um, eventually, through a variety of different stop-offs, ended up at, um, you know, the big Mizzou there and uh, was coach of uh, Missouri's football team and really left a lasting impression and you know, he's got a, a lot of interesting achievements, 10 bowl appearances, lots of NFL players go on to play in the NFL, uh, lots of division titles and awards and contests that uh, have created a great legacy. So, Coach, uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and, and thanks and welcome to On the Whistle. Well, Gary, thank you very much for having me. I'm very humbled to be here with you, and uh, um, I appreciate that introduction, but that uh, it was just a life filled of passion, so... It was fun. I get that. And I also noticed in all of your writings and in all of uh, your interviews that you really emphasize the we, not the me. And so uh, my, my sense is that you got there bringing a lot of people along with you and a lot of people helping you get there. There's no question about it. You know, life, life is a journey and it's, it's led by the people that you touch, you know, the books you read the people you surround yourself with and, and, you know, the good Lord blessed me by being surrounded by really, really quality people, not just players, but other coaches and mentors that uh, have guided me along the path. You know, you just used an interesting phrase. You said the good Lord. And uh, I, I read your book just so everybody knows coach and I met on LinkedIn. Um, I like to reach out to mentors, coaches, and leaders on LinkedIn. And, and he was receptive to my invitation and, and by the way, just as a lesson in life, you know, you got to open up your channels and you accept invitations and you meet people. And that's kind of part of the fun of the journey of life. And I could tell right away, coaches like, hey, uh, 
nice to meet you too. By the way, read my book. So I said, okay, I will. And I ordered it. I ordered it on Amazon. The name of the book is The Fisherman, Leadership Traits to Win the Game of Life, written by Dave Steckel um, with an introduction by a guy by the name of John Gordon. So I got the book in and I, I dug into it. And it's a it's an easy read. It's a really enjoyable read. It's a wonderful story. But you just said the good Lord. And I noticed at the top of each chapter or many of the chapter, there is a Bible verse. And so I just kind of want to start off. I know it's a little bit of a heavy topic, but what is the role of religion in your coaching practice and kind of in, in the journey here? Well, you know, it, it is a heavy topic and, um, I believe greatly in my faith. I believe there's a God and he had a son, Jesus Christ. Um, but I'm also not a pusher. I, I want to experience people to, um, what I believe in and you could take it or leave it. And it's kind of interesting, you know, um, I, I'm going to answer your question this way to you is, you know, when I was coaching and I started becoming, I became the defensive coordinator at Mizzou, which I appreciate you telling me that. Every Sunday, I called it Sunday school. So I left every defensive meeting with a Bible verse. And uh, the players started chuckling about it because I told them, you know, as it says in the old history book, I mean, okay, I wrote a book that may live or may not live. It's 88 pages, okay? But then here, here's a Bible that was written how long ago, and it's still circulating. I mean, it's got to be true. And if it's not true... Well, I, I didn't lose anything by not reading it, you know. So I would share that with my players, Gary, and it was we call it Sunday school. And I would just give them a Bible verse that pertained to the past game, and then would look forward to the new game on something we had to work on to make us better. And it was just a part of my life, you know. My brother actually is Les Steckel, and he's uh, he was an NFL coach for many many years, and then became the president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So. It's a touching part of my life, and you come and go with that. Uh, going back to my comment before about the people you surround yourself with, Gary. So I think I'm in a better place, and I was in a better place maybe 15, 20 years ago with uh, with the God thing. And I, and I feel very comfortable about it and feel very honored about it. So I do start with a Bible verse because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be around here reading it. Well, I, I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, diving into the book. So for those of you who have not read it, it's got a contents at the beginning. And I'm going to read to you the, the chapter titles. Um, the concept of the book is Coach uh, is on vacation and he's walking on the beach and he comes across a pier. And at the end of the pier is a fisherman. And he has a series of conversations with this fisherman. And the fisherman is guiding us, the reader and the coach, in the lessons of life. And so here's some of the chapter titles, uh, and I'm just going to pick them randomly. Passion, Judgment, Unselfishness, Initiative, Courage, Endurance, 50-Yard Line, Accountability, Integrity, Loyalty, Enthusiasm. I mean, if you want a guidepost for life and a quality of a life lived, like those words have to be part of your vernacular if you believe in this concept of leadership, mentorship, and getting to a better place, a place of more fulfillment. And so I'm just curious, before we kind of get into the content of the book, Coach, uh, 
how did you come up with this kind of organization? Forget about how you came up with the, the idea of the fishermen, but these words that you chose as your chapter headings, they, they seem okay. very deliberate. They were very deliberate, Gary. And I, I kind of, uh, I always tease people. I have a crazy mind, but I exactly know where it's headed. Okay. Um, and they were deliberate because what I thought of when I, uh, was a D coordinator at Mizzou. And then also when I became the head coach at Missouri state, I really believed in my heart and it happens to people as you get older, when you're younger, you're hungry, thirsty, you want to make all the advancements in life. But at some point, um, you have to say to yourself, do you want to be successful or do you want to be significant? And at some point you're going to cross that barrier in life and say, I want to be significant. So I want to make an impact on these young men's lives, not just win football games, which I trust me, I was all about winning Gary. Okay. But I want to make an impact on their lives and how can I build them into making men? And, you know, on the, on the part of the book, it says, you know, on the cover, it says leadership traits to win the game of life. So I thought about my life and what it takes to what I think wins the game of life. And that's why those words pop out. And in the off season, we taught those words to our kids and what we thought they meant and how you can benefit from them and how you can achieve greatness, not just in the football field, but also in the classroom. And then as you walk through the doors with a diploma on with your life. You know, in, in one of the chapters early on the book, there's a quote, what is it about coaching that makes it your passion? And the fisherman says in return, the ability to impact young men's lives, I say, and to help guide them in shaping their future. I mean, that is the theme of the show. That is on the whistle 101. Later on, it goes on to say, um, the qualities essential to being a leader are you will earn a person much in return, including respect, confidence, and loyalty and cooperation of others. Being a good leader. So you obviously framed out these words and then you built this allegory around having a conversation with, with a fisherman. And I want to ask you a question. There's a little bit of a surprise dynamic in the book. When I was reading the book and I had a picture in my mind about the fisherman and what he looked like. And I think like many of the readers who read your book, they probably created an older version of themselves in what they saw as the fisherman to look like, or maybe I took the picture I saw of you on the back of the book and made it look older because the fisherman to me was. Thanks, thanks, Gary. I'm already old enough. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking some old guy, right? Yes, sir. But that's not what this guy looks like. No. So why, what, why is that element in the book? Well, because I think as you go through this journey of life, there's so many things and so many people that can impact your life that don't look like us and don't look like me and don't look like you. And, you know, don't look like the fishermen. There's so many different people that can touch your lives that you need to open up to a new perspective and to get a different perspective from other people. And the fisherman is another person. Sometimes, you know, I had one friend say this to me, they go, the fisherman sounds like it's you. And to an extent, it's me talking to me, but at the other frame, I want to color a picture that was different. 
and the fisherman looks different and he's he looks different than you and he looks different than me and it came to me as as you know a real surprise um i was reading an article about earlier in your career where you actually ended up teaching some young kids <clears throat> so you you graduated college and your first job was a sixth or seventh grade teacher is that correct that's correct i coached coached high school football and i was a sixth grade teacher and what I read in the article was there was a portion of that culture that upset you because when you went into the faculty lounges, some of the faculty members were complaining about specific students that they had last year or they were going to get this year or whatever it was, and that frustrated you and upset you. There's a concept in your book around um, dealing with conflict privately and then locking arms together ex out in the outside world and in, in, in the external facing world. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, those feelings you had in the, in the teacher lounge and how you learned from it to build a culture of private conflict, public unification. Well, yeah, that's, you really did your research and I'm very impressed and, humbled again that you, you dug that deep that that bothered me because you know I don't want to sound like a huge cliche here but people do not rise to low expectations people rise to high expectations and whether people want to say it you know your tongue is a rudder it also says that in the old history book and these people would uh, so many people who you know complain and whine and bitch not to, you know, sound bad and stuff, you know, that is almost like throwing up. It, it makes that person maybe feel good, but it makes everybody else around you sick. And that's what it did to me because these are our youth of America that we're growing up. And why are you putting a bubble on them saying, Oh, poor Johnny's this or poor Mary's that. And Oh, that's Johnny's brother. So automatically he's like Johnny you know what, have an open mind and come in there with these kids to think, what can I mold and make these kids to do better? Okay. Um, if you have a pre preconceived notion of how someone's going to be, that's how they're going to be. So you need to have an open mind with that. So when you take that into the portion of the book we talked about, yeah, there's a, there's a room, there's doors on rooms. You come in, you shut the door, and you air out your conflict, you get on the same page, and yes, you walk outside that door hand in hand with a mutual front because, you know, people or staffs, coaching staff, coaching teams, athletic teams, if there's friction and conflict, you cannot succeed. Everybody's got to be moving in the same direction to push the bus. So I think it's very, very important that you got to be very honest with people and, uh, Today's society, I don't think it handles conflict much. And it, there's only conflict when you don't just when you disagree. But you can still disagree and get along and move forward. You inherited a team, and when you inherited that team, uh, and I, I forgot which team, uh, you chose not to read the scouting reports or or watch any of the tapes. You. Uh, 
You just wanted to meet each player one-on-one and establish your own opinion. Correct. Is that because you didn't want to inherit the biases of the previous people? That's because of the lesson I learned on my first job in a sixth grade, sixth grade teacher's lounge. I want to make my own opinions based on what they did on the field, how they acted off the field, how they approached and handled other people and find out who they really are as people and then work with them from there. Let's just jumping back a little bit. Um, you served uh, as a Marine. Yes, sir. You entered the Marine Corps at the end of the Vietnam War. Was the yes, was, was the war over when you enlisted? Was it wrapping yes, it up? Just got just got over. It was just over, and uh, I tease everybody how well, you know when I went to Paris Island how that was so difficult because the drill instructors just came out of the Vietnam War, <laughs> so they knew what it was going to take to be successful if we had to go back to war again. So they learned a lot, but it was it was it was tough. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to say it wasn't. Yeah, and it was tough from all aspects, the the physical endurance, like what they put you through, but I'm sure there was a mental component to it as well. A lot of it was mental component because a lot of people are, you know, at that young age, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, they're, for the most part, are physically fit. You know, they're, 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 you have to add some to it. Yeah. But it was all, it was a huge mental. And what can your body take physically but what can the mind overcome mentally yeah that's a recurring theme we had uh a couple shows ago we had this interesting these two guys who were state rivals two lacrosse coaches phenomenal uh, lacrosse coaches here in rhode island one was head of the state police and uh in rhode island for a long time and he's still he's an older guy but he's super fit and he said uh one of the best coaches he had was his high school wrestling coach because he shared the experience of the fact that your mind quits before your body. And the coach taught me, he's like, hey, look, you know, you're fit, you're a strong guy. The only thing that's stopping you right now is your mind. And when your mind quits, then your body gives out. <clears throat> and he, he explained to me in the show that uh, the mind is far stronger. Uh, f- the body's far stronger than the mind will will it to in some in some instances. So, um, so you know, back down to the Marine Corps, I, I believe – the reason you, you entered at a young age, you were 17 and you needed your dad's signature. And there's seemed to be some sort of an interesting backstory to that. Like your dad said you were a good street cowboy or something like that. Or he, he called, <laughs> he was, bust, he, I, I think he was impressed with your ability to play sports and run around and, and, you know, getting maybe a little bit of trouble. So is that why you said, I got to pick myself up and, and join the Marine Corps? Yeah. He, uh, he had a big saying. My father was a, a high school math teacher in inner city school in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, people probably listening to this show have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but it was, you remember back in the old days with the drugstore. Yeah, drugstore um, cowboys, what he called you, right? Drugstore cowboy. You know, those, those were the guys who hung out at the drugstore and were going to just be bums their whole life, you know? <laughs> so he, he thought I was going to be a drugstore cowboy. And uh, so that's why I went to the Marine Corps before I went to college. And, and did you do that because, I mean, I'm just, in, I'm curious, what was the motivation, meaning obviously serving your country is a great honor. And, and I, I understand like your core personality is one of, of respect and honor and effort. 
And so it's a natural stepping off point or, or leader, you know, a beginning of this journey of the things that you had ahead of you. It makes sense for me to, to learn about you, know about you. Hey, I'm going to start my life at discipline with the most disciplined organization on earth. It's called the U.S. Marine Corps. So were you preparing yourself mentally and physically for this journey that you were going to take on? Or were you just getting out of dad's backhand because he was calling you a drugstore cowboy? Yeah, I think it was God leading me to the Marine Corps. You know, my brother was a Marine Corps officer after he graduated from Kansas. And uh, highly recommend the Marine Corps because I was a drugstore cowboy. My dad was on my back. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was the guy they talked about in the sixth grade lounge. Cause all I cared about was having a great time and playing sports. So for people, uh, sometimes they see me now and say, okay, you graduated from college and Oh, you have a master's degree and you, you did a good job coaching. And then the last stage was you wrote a book. <laughs> the, that would have never happened if I did not go serve in the United States Marine Corps. So I'm very blessed and, honored to be a Marine. And I thank the Marines every day for those three years to put my path on the arrow going better forward than backwards. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's an interesting description of the experience. There's a chapter in the book uh, about endurance. It's an unusual concept in the, in the way you share it in the book, because and by the way, this is the one word that really resonated with me of all the chapters and all the topics is this concept of endurance. Because, really? you, because you can have the ingredients, you can have the leadership ingredients, you can have the character, you can have the integrity, you can have the empathy, you can have the discipline. But if you don't have the endurance, you just don't make it. According to the chapter, and and it really related to me because I've been on a multiple I mean, I've been working since, you know, I graduated college and uh, I've been on an entrepreneurial journey to build businesses and it's hard and there's a lot of low points and there's a lot of days where you don't know what you're into and how you're going to make it to the other side. And if you don't have endurance, I can just, if I hadn't had my own career endurance, I could have seen having raised the white flag and said, I got to go work for the bank downtown or the law office or some other middle of the road kind of thing. And so this piece really kind of resonated with me because this concept of like, it's hard, it takes a long time and you got to last it out. That's true. And I think Gary, what's real important, especially, you know, if, if the youth of America is listening to this, they need to understand that life is not a microwave. What does that mean? It's a slow, it's a slow cook oven. You, you don't pop things in there and nuke it for two minutes and it's ready to go. You got to put it in the oven. You got to prepare the meal. You got to take it slow and cook it. It's life is such a great journey. And there's a quote in that book says, you know, don't give up five minutes before the miracle. So many people, if they don't get it now, they don't want to take that next step. There's so many people that see, pick any form of life you want to, 
Okay. When I mean by form of life, I'm talking about an occupation and, you know, going way back when Edison discovered the light bulb. Okay. And in the book, it refers to, uh, Dyson, uh, carpet cleaners. Okay. And to an NFL athlete, all you see, all the fancy is Sunday. They didn't see all those years and all those hours and all those months that led up to that Sunday of preparation work and the endurance to get them there, the endurance to invent the uh, microwave, to invent the, the vacuum cleaner, to invent the light bulb. It took a lot of practice, a lot of reps, a lot of work. And to do that and to achieve, you have to have endurance. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no doubt. You know, my dad always said to me when I was feeling defeated, he said, Gary, the night is darkest before the dawn. And I could always see that in my mind, this kind of like line of dark, dark, dark black, and then this emerging sun. And so I, I, I get it, and, and I really appreciate that. Talk to me a little bit about uh, why Dickinson – was so interesting and, and important that you, you talk about it in the book. There was a coach there that had a great enthusiasm. Uh, was it Sweeney or Swedes you called him? Sweeney. Sweeney. We called him Sweens. Uh, it was Ed Sweeney. God rest his soul. He passed away. And uh, he, he was such, he was like a little energizer buddy. And the thing that, that made Dickinson such a great place for me, okay, and, and this is everybody, it's the coaching profession, it's I think a lot of professions. People wanna move up for one of two reasons. You don't realize that, right? One of two reasons, and usually both. And the reasons are money or ego. And in the coaching world, it's probably both. You wanna move up because of money, you wanna move up because your ego says, I wanna be a coach here, I wanna coach there and stuff. And I tell people all the time, if you paid me the same amount that I ended up getting paid one time, okay, which I was embarrassed to make that much money coaching, I'd coach at Dickinson College. Those kids, you know, you go into a huddle there at Dickinson, and first of all, it was Division Three, so they were paying their own way. So these kids are paying their own money to come to school unless they're, unless they're on the Pell or financial aid, things of that nature. And I get to go into huddle and yell at these kids and coach these kids up and get after them and they're sitting there going, wait a minute, I'm paying all this money for stuff to be yelling at me like this? And they were there because they loved football. They weren't on scholarship. You, you, you go to Mizzou and you got all 85 guys on scholarship and no offense, but there's probably 10 of them that don't want to be there, but they ain't leaving because they're getting school paid for. So there's a different dynamic there. Um, I love Dickinson. I love the kids. And, and the other thing about that is you go in that huddle those kids at Dickinson wanted to grow up and they wanted to be entrepreneurs like yourself. They want to be lawyers, doctors, you know, it, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Ed Sweeney got there and we took over a program. I tease everybody all the time. We got there. Sweeney said, I said, how were you last year? He said, well, we were 0 and 10. I said, you were 0 and 10 last year. He goes, no, we were 0 and 10 for the last 10 years. <laughs> and I took over this program to, to win. And, we, we went four and uh, six our first year and seven and three our second year. And then because of money and ego, I left and went to Lehigh University. But Dickinson was a great place. I learned so much from Ed Sweeney. 
Um, I was a young coach getting out and he kind of mentored me and helped me. And I understood what touching young kids lives meant. Yeah. The other interesting thing that you said in the book, and I think it's a reflection of your humility. You said all these kids were smarter than me. How do you, I mean, how do you know? That, that wasn't humility. That was as, as young kids say it nowadays on Twitter, hashtag fact. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, I could, I could tell you some funny stories there, but these kids were, you know, the average SAT score to get in there, I think was like 1300 or something like that. All right. On a, on a good day, I had 13. <laughs> so they were very intelligent kids who, who um, came from all different kinds of walks and backgrounds. And, but uh, I think that was more of a fact, Gary, not humility. <laughs> you know, I got a bone to pick with you. And one of the chapters, you talk about your lifelong passion and love of the New York Yankees. <laughs> Just a matter of time before that came up, huh? Now, you can laugh all you want, but growing up in southern Massachusetts and having gone to college up and around the Boston area, there, there for me was, I mean, the closest thing to heaven on earth is Fenway Park. I mean, it's just a magical place. How the hell did you become a Yankees fan, and uh, how do I change that? Okay, here's how, here's how I became a Yankees fan, because I was a drugstore cowboy, all right? Mm-hmm. And uh, people listening, again, might not know what this is, but we had four channels where I grew up in Whitehall, Pennsylvania, okay? You know, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Channel 11 was WPIX out of New York. Hmm. And then we had the radio station. And I spent a lot of time in my room after I get my behind walloped. So in the summertime, and I put on the radio and listened to the Yankee games. And on WPIX and Channel 11, we didn't get the Philadelphia Phillies games. We got the Yankee games there for whatever reason. And I became a Yankee fan. I will agree with you on one thing. Okay. Fenway is magical. My brother coached for uh, the new England Patriots and he got my wife and I just got married a very close friend of mine who coaches at Northeastern and his wife. And he got us uh, back in the old days on Monday night baseball. I think it was on ABC. Don't quote me. But uh, we were three rows behind first base, four rows behind first base. Don Mattingly playing first base. But Roger Clemens was on the mound at Fenway. Yeah, that was the uh, 80s. For the, yes, sir, it was. It was 1987. And uh, he was on the mound for, for the Red Sox. And a buddy of mine actually was the manager at Who's on First. That is, I don't know if that. Yeah, uh, I remember Who's on sports First. Sports sure. across the street. Yeah. And uh, he was the manager. He's actually the guy I replaced at Dickinson College when I went there. He was coaching at Dickinson, got out and got into business, took a little sabbatical and was managing the bar before he got into the business world. And guys, a great table. And it, it's a, it was a very lifetime memory. And you're right, Fenway's a magical part right next to the old Yankee Stadium. When you were growing up, did you have any inspirational coaches and teachers? I think uh, they all touch your lives different ways. You know, they really do. I think uh, I think back to Andy Molaski. What he taught was he was my high school football coach. Coach Molaski taught a lot of discipline, hard nose. You know, I I, I went to high school in, in uh, the very early '70s, so back then, you know, the coaching was a little bit different and a little more physical and stuff. And basketball coach was Dick Tracy and stuff and. Uh, 
they, they had a different coaching style, but they, what they taught you was how to be tough and disciplined and doing what's right, and you'll, you'll be successful at the end. When you think about some of your coaching across all those years, are there some memorable student-athletes that you can think back on when you recognize that what you were doing was going to have a profound influence? I mean, can you get granular with it in any way? You know, I guess what happens is because you get older or something, but the, the most unbelievable thing that really touches me and uh, tags my emotional button, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the, was it Jim Valvano said every day you got to laugh, you know, and, and cry a little bit is, you know, kids I personally coach. I mean, when I say that, I'm talking about my linebackers. And uh, there's there's been other players, obviously, but my linebackers who all got drafted sent me their jersey with something written on it, which now is framed and hangs in my uh, wall of shame. And, uh, you know, just the other day, there's a linebacker who got drafted, played nine or ten years in the National Football League, and I'm just sitting at home. All of a sudden, my phone goes off, and it says, Coach, I'm just sitting here with a buddy reminiscing football, and I can't thank you enough on the impact you made in my life, and I would have never got where I was today without you. And I just sit there, and I look at my wife, and I sit on hell. I'm getting ready to tear up now because of it, because that just – that means what I did and what we did and what our family did, meaning my wife, my daughter, because it's all about the family, and they're, they're, they are part of our family – it served a purpose and they deep down appreciate it. They might not, you know, all those, those butt whoopings I got from my pop. I sure didn't like them when I got them because I was a drugstore cowboy. Okay. <laughs> I love that. But when you look back, yeah. it's just funny. But, but when you look back, Gary, it's, it's true. You know, they, uh, you need kids need discipline and you know what? They want discipline That's and they right. want to say, I can't go do that. Cause coach said that. I can't do that because my mom and dad will get pissed at me. But they really don't want to do it anyway on their own, but now they got an excuse, and their excuse was always, Steck will kill me if I do that. So they want discipline. They thrive for discipline. But they don't realize it until 5 to 10, 15 years after college. You know, like here's a story for you. There's a kid named Sheldon Richardson, first-round draft pick for the Jets. Uh, went to Seattle at Cleveland. I think Cleveland just released him. And – he asked me, he texted me one day and said, Steck, I need that Bible verse on humility that you t- always used to tell me. All it says to me, the only reason why I tell that story is because the kids are listening. So coaches out there, if you're listening to this, your kids are listening. They might not grasp it for five or six years from now, but they are listening. You are a leader to them, and you're molding them to be leaders of the future. Yeah, I mean, that that's it, and it takes – it's takes a community and and what a awesome awesome privilege and, and job that you must have done affecting so many young people through their path and process to get to where they eventually got to what's it like being such a football guy and having a daughter kind of a loaded it's question awesome. did you awesome. co- did you coach her I'm growing up girl. no i didn't my daughter um has what's uh, high functioning autism. So she's a dad's girl and she's actually a mama's girl, but my, my daughter, and let me get put in perspective how this is a family. Okay. Okay. And uh, how my wife does a great job and stuff. My daughter 
loves football if it's my team. She won't watch football. She hates football. She hates sports. Now, the dog show's on. She's watching it, okay? Harry Potter's on. She's watching it. She she's, has a job, works at a doggy daycare, all those things. So getting back to how she's so loyal is we I'd be watching a football game, a pro football game. And we'd sit down, and she's, I say, Dad, who's playing? Well, you know, the Patriots are playing – um, the Eagles. She goes, no, you know, let me know. So how I had to relate to her was dad, who's playing? Well, Ziggy's playing against spoon or Evers coaching this game. And she'd sit down and watch the game just because she knew that player, or that coach. So she's going to watch the game to support them. But it's like, dad, who's playing? Nobody. Okay. See you. Bye. <laughs> and what about the, you know, it's, it's really interesting in, in the book. You can tell that you have a very strong marriage and a very tight family. Did your wife, uh, was she an athlete growing up? Did, did you spend a lot of time? Like, I go home at night and I say to my wife, Elizabeth, I'm like, you know, I'm dealing with this. And this thing's going on at work. And this person's doing that. And this customer says this. And it's kind of unfair in a way because, you know, I just dump all the garbage on, on the kitchen counter because I got to get rid of it. Cause I got to come home and decompress somehow. But if you, if I look back and you know, I've been married, I'll be married, I think 24 years this August. If I look back on that quarter of a century of, of marriage or about to be a quarter of a century marriage, it's like, well, she carried half the load. So I'm just wondering is your wife like half the coach and all these teams and all these programs and all these successes well, first of all, she's she's a part of all the successes. Mary Beth is a rock star. It takes a unique breed to be a uh, coach's wife. It takes a bigger, unique breed to be a college coach, college football coach's wife, and it takes a saint to be Steck's wife. Because I'm a uh, I'm a PIA, you know, yeah, pain in the rear end. Um, however, why I say it takes it's so unique, Gary, is because for the most part of your life, you're a single parent because coaches are coaching their teams. They're out on the road. They bring the baggage home with them. But what we started doing at a very early age is because at the end of the day, coaching, yes, it's about winning. I don't want everybody to think it's not, but it's about relationships. And we had a relationship with the players. We'd bring them over to feed them. We'd bring them over if they had problems. You know, I told him if there's something that I can't help you out with, Mary Beth will help you out with, you know, I'll never, ever forget. I had a player call me one time when I was at Mizzou, a really good linebacker. And he says, coach, what are you doing? Cause you know, coaches are on the phone 24 seven. You're on call 24 seven. I said, what's up? He goes, is Mary Beth home? Mary Beth. Yeah. She's home. He goes, can I come over? I got to talk to Mary Beth. I'm like, what? He comes over. They go out on the deck and they talk and he leaves and you know, he, he needed some guidance and help with a girlfriend problem. Something that you, you know? something that you didn't know about. I didn't know about it. And if he came for me advice, I say, you're having a problem with a girlfriend, break up with her. <laughs> you know, you got to play football and get an education. Point being is we did this all together. You know what I mean? You know, when I was at Rutgers, it flashed back in my mind, 
you know, my players weren't keeping their weight because they weren't going to breakfast. So I said, and I lived right by the stadium. I said, it's real simple, guys. Next week, if you guys don't make your way, you're going to be at my house at 7 o'clock in the morning, Mary Best making your breakfast, and that's that's the end of it. And we just moved into this house. It was right by the stadium. Well, guess what? They didn't make weight. That whole next week, every morning, they were at my house at 7 o'clock in the morning before their 8 o'clock class. Mary Beth made them breakfast at 7.40. They took Amanda, walked her to the bus stop. All these other moms are like, who are these kids? <laughs> it's like Mary Beth, like Amanda had her own personal bodyguard. They take her to the bus stop and they go off the thing. It was all being a part of relationships and being part. It was, it was never a cliche to Mary Beth and I, we were a family. And I was just like you though. I came home and I had things in my mind. They'd be like, I can't talk right now. I need to, I need to decompress. I need to think. And, you know, being a D coordinator also, you, it never goes away. All the problems never go away. The thoughts, the images, it never leaves. Not just me, but every coach. Any coach who's worth his weight in gold is always thinking about his players and how to be more successful next. And Mary Beth has been great about it. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful feedback to know that that partnership, you know, generates so much uh, positivity and, and love. And uh, I think you're right. I think she is a saint. If I told my wife that I was bringing all those people over to, you know, have her make them breakfast, I think she'd test that one. I don't, I don't know if she'd be so satisfied with my decision on that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, she wasn't satisfied, but she understood the big picture. So, yeah, and, and nice. plus, she loved being the mama to. Well, that's what my life. You know? My wife adores that. I mean, when any anybody comes home, we have two boys and a daughter, and they bring any friend home. First thing she wants to do is feed them. I just, it's phenomenal. Just, and, you know, Mother's Day just happened, and she probably got five or six text messages from former players saying, happy, birth, uh, happy Mother's Day, Mom. I mean, it's just it, – it's we were, it, was a, it was a we, not a me. Yeah. Coach, if – you know, just thinking back about the, the whole picture, I mean, what is it that you would tell a young coach today, you know, a, a guy young, running a youth – a town youth program or – a mentor at a school or, you know, a high school coach, a woman's field hockey coach, a men's football coach. What would you tell them besides reading the book? Be fair. It's in the book, but be fair, be consistent and be demanding on them and set limitations with the parents. Um, Cause you mentioned youth coaching. Um, the parents are getting out of hand a little bit. This is my observation, you know, and I can say it now and not hurt anybody's feelings, but, uh, you know, Gary, I, I'll never forget. My godson was playing baseball. We were off in the summer. I went and watched one of his baseball games back in Pennsylvania. And I was sitting over there in the stands. It was the championship game too, which was really cool and stuff. And we're talking about 12, 13 year old kids. <clears throat> and I go over and leave and I go stand over by the first baseline. My best friend comes over, Greg Gristick and says, Stack, what do you, why you come over here? I go, how can you sit up there? How can you listen to those parents? I mean, are you kidding me? It just, it blew me away. And remember we talked about the tongue being the rudder. Those kids go home and listen to their parents. Yeah, it's bad. And so I would, I would really sit down with the parents and say, listen, here's how we're going to do things. And I'm going to be fair. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be demanding on your kids. And it's all out of love and respect to teach them to the next. And if you don't want to really do this, take them over to Bobby's team, okay? <laughs> Let them go play for Bobby. Now, with that said, when I say me demanding, I'm telling them, 
you know, talking youth baseball, make them run out the base. Okay. Make them hustle, make them do this. That's what I mean by demanding, not never, ever, ever as a coach, should you be demeaning, should be demanding, make them strive to be whatever the bar is set to go achieve for, you know, say what you want about everybody, but he flashed back in my mind just now was P Rose. That guy ran everything out. He, there's a reason why they call him Charlie hustle, teach kids to hustle, respect the game, play the game and have fun doing it. That's what sports is about and teach them something along the way. You know, we, we wrap up the show typically with one question and, and it goes like this, having played in all these sports yourself and having coached all these different teams and games, what have you gained more from over your career? the wins or the losses coach the relationships you're the, the relationships. you're the first person to object to answer you go on record with that you're a renegade yeah. you must be a drugstore cowboy <laughs> god love you. you you know what the problem with coaching is is uh, and i'll tell you the story this way okay um do we have time for a quick little story of course it's your time this is your this is your episode Okay, we were at Mizzou, and my family came up. When I say my family, my wife's whole family came up, and my nieces were there and stuff. And we played Oklahoma. It was 2010, and they were number one in the country, and we beat them. And, you know, they mobbed the field. There was a night game. Goalposts come down, yada, yada, yada. One of those all-time great wins, okay? I had to go do the radio show after the game. I'm like, thank God I got to do the radio show. That made me happy for a couple minutes. And I, so I took the girls up there with me to the radio show so they can understand what it's like. And my nephew also. And then we came back to my house and it's now it's like one in the morning because it was a night game on ABC. And, uh, I see the girls huddle up with Mary Beth in the corner. I'm like, well, what's going on over there? Like, what's up? And they, and they like disperse. Okay. And what was that about? So the next night I come home on Sunday night after the practice and all that stuff. And I said, Mary Beth, what was that about? And uh, we were with the girls, and they all said, you don't want to know. I said, yeah, I do want to know. And they said, if that's how he is after he wins a game, I'd never want to be around him after they lose. Meaning what? Because that you weren't, you weren't happy at the end of this great victory? Because I was happy for a couple minutes, and my brain functioned quickly to – we just knocked off the number one team in the country. Every one of those kids are being pat on the back. Everybody loves them. And we have to play Nebraska next week. How am I going to get their minds ready to function for the next week? That's how my brain always thought. So to answer your question, I ruminated over the losses. The wins were short-lived. And looking back, I should have enjoyed the wins a little bit more. Interesting. Coach, you're an inspiration for those of you who have access to Amazon, which is of the 330 million Americans and three or six billion global citizens, probably 85% of them. My recommendation is to get yourself a copy of The Fisherman Leadership Traits to Win the Game of Life by Dave Steckel. Coach, super fun to talk to you, and uh, we'd love to stay in touch and, and check back in and uh you know, maybe as football season rolls around, we can get you back on and you can tell us what you're thinking about some of these up-and-coming uh, rookies and a couple different topics. We'd love to stay in touch with you if that's okay. It's absolutely okay. And, again, I'm very humbled that you had me on. This is very enjoyable. 
and uh, God bless you. Yeah, same to you, Coach, and welcome, uh, welcome to the show, and we'll wrap it up, and thanks so much for being with us. All right, thank you. Have a great day. On the Whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one-stop shop for customized team apparel, delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com.